Gospel of Mark. We actually began this series last year uh, while we were over at the community center still. And uh, we have taken a few detours since then. So don't, uh, if you're new with us this morning, don't get too concerned. Uh, we took actually a handful of detours. But we are back in uh, Mark chapter 7. We're going to look beginning in verse number 1. It'll also be up on the screen. And as you're turning there uh, as well, let me just remind you, and I know this doesn't work for everybody based on your schedule, your work schedule, but every Tuesday morning, um, uh, the, the sanctuary is open for what we're just simply calling pursuit prayer uh, from anywhere from seven to eight in the morning. I have music just playing in here and you can come and go as you want. Um, if you want to stay the whole hour, you can. If you want to come for five minutes, that's fine. Um, whatever works with your schedule. But just want to encourage you, um, I'll be in here. Sanctuary is open every Tuesday morning from 7 to 8. And, and just a chance for you to spend a little bit of time in God's presence before you go to work or uh, before you start your day. And uh, some of you maybe start your day several hours before that. So um, if you need a break in the middle of your day, come and join us again, 7 to 8, uh, every Tuesday morning, uh, Sanctuary is open. I want to encourage you to join us for prayer. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. And this is but one of, listen, many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus replied to them in verse 6, and he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips. But their hearts, Jesus said, are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I, have, what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear and this is almost one of those moments where Jesus is saying, you know, come listen in. I don't want you to miss what I have to say. I want you to listen carefully and listen to his response. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from where your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd and his disciples and asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you. 
Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. Jesus said, they are what defile you. Holy Spirit, I just pray in these next few moments together, as we center ourselves around the living word of God, the word that is powerful, the word that is true. I pray and I ask all across this room that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand and comprehend the word, the message that you have for each of us in this room today. Holy Spirit, help me to speak your word with incredible boldness. Help me to speak your word with clarity and with simplicity Most importantly, God, help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you in this room have a tradition in your family that you absolutely love that you've given yourself to for many, many years? Probably several of you in this room. I don't know about you. I love, I love traditions. I love um, doing things sometimes the same thing every single year just because you know we've done it as a family or we've grown up doing it, something that we've enjoyed doing together. It brings back great memories. I know just recently my family and I, so my wife, uh, she has two other siblings, two brothers, they have children and all live in and around the Muncie area. And we've made it kind of this tradition now uh, this year to meet together once a month at Sarah's parents' house for what we just simply call cousin night. So our kids have a chance to interact with and play with their cousins. And I know that's something we've only done now for a few months, but it's already a tradition that, that our children absolutely love. They love getting together with, with their cousins and playing, and, and some of them probably shouldn't hang out together. I don't know. We try to keep them apart. Um, I won't name any names of my children, but there's some. You know them. Um, but that's a tradition that my family absolutely loves. Maybe some of you in this room, uh, any, any of you love to shop few of you. How many go out on Black Friday every single year? Not too many of you. Okay. I don't either. I absolutely avoid. (laughs) I did one time as well, and that was the last time. (laughs) One time was enough for me. Uh, But some of you, I know there's many that get around that tradition, especially around the holidays. There's certain family traditions. You go to grandparents' houses or or parents' houses, or you, um, you know, maybe you have a certain thing that you do around the holidays or a Christmas time. I've shared with you before, one of the things that we've always done growing up in my family's house, we would go to my grandparents, and every single year, my grandpa, and still does it to this day, uh, when we celebrate Christmas with them, opens up to Luke chapter 2, and my grandpa will read uh, the, the story of Jesus' birth right out of uh, Luke chapter 2. And it's something before we open presents, before we do anything else, we center ourselves around the Word of God, something that uh, I look forward to, and I know it's something that my family enjoys as we hear hear the story of Christ's birth on Christmas Day. But I know there's certain traditions that you probably have that you, um, maybe a Sunday family dinner, uh, maybe Sunday 
Sunday afternoon, you don't cook, you go over to somebody else's house and, and, and they cook and you enjoy time with family. I think if we're honest, we probably build our lives around certain traditions, certain family traditions that we enjoy. But sometimes I think we, we hold so tightly to some of those traditions that if anyone or anything tries to change just one thing about that tradition, it becomes all-out war. Anybody ever experienced that? Um, my sister, I hope she doesn't listen to the live stream. Um, my sister is, is one of those individuals around the Christmas season. She just absolutely needs to and wants to, and I understand, but she wants to celebrate Christmas and open presents on Christmas Day. She doesn't want to do it the day before Christmas Eve. She doesn't want to do it the day after. That's one of those things that, that we have to somehow, which is getting a little bit harder with, with lots, of more, lots more kids involved. It's difficult to, to all show up uh, at my parents' house for Christmas Day. But it's one of those things that if you try to change that, it's very, very difficult. And, and I'll deny it. Um, if she asks about it, if she goes and listens to the live stream, then I have, uh, I guess I'm stuck. <laughs> Um, just one of those weak moments, I guess. But sometimes, though, we are immovable, maybe even stubborn when it comes to those traditions. We don't want to bring others into the mix. Uh, we are sometimes resistant to change. And I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about just humanity in general. There is this sense that, that none of us really like change. We like to, to engage in things in the way that they have always been. The Pharisees, though, they were a religious sect, and they were known for their traditions. They were actually referred to as the people who were the keeper of the tradition. Mark refers to one of those traditions, actually refers to their purity traditions in our text. Let's read it again and listen to the tradition of the Pharisees. They noticed that some of his disciples, speaking of Jesus' disciples, they failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many, many traditions, as Mark indicates, that they have, listen, they've clung to. It means they've held too tightly, that there, there's no wiggle room allowed such as their ceremonial, ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. All sorts of traditions revolving around hand washing and how to prepare yourself before a meal within the Jewish context and, and the washing of, of the items that are going to be used at the meals. There's a lot of steps involved, to be honest. I wouldn't remember what to do first or second or third or, or not to do. In this particular case, there were several traditions that they gave themselves to. But what's very interesting is that these traditions actually had their roots in the Scriptures, it was actually legislation that was given by God to the priest all the way back in the Old Testament. Let me give you just one example or two examples. In Exodus chapter 30, look at verses 19 through 21. Aaron, who was the priest, and his sons, they will wash their hands and feet there. They must wash with water whenever they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord. 
And when they approach the altar to burn up their special gifts to the Lord, or they will die, they must always wash their hands and feet, or they will die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and his descendants. His descendants would have been the priesthood to be observed from generation to generation. Then look at Exodus chapter 40 and just look at one other verse, verse 12. Present Aaron and his sons at the entrance of the tabernacle and wash them with water. So you can see that, the, that these regulations, these traditions had their roots in Old Testament scripture, but they were met for the priests. They were met for Aaron and his descendants and the entire priesthood. And they were supposed to uh, prepare themselves, cleanse themselves before they went into the tabernacle. Why? Because in the tabernacle is where God's presence was dwelling and and, and holy cannot dwell with the unholy. So they had to wash themselves. They had to be made clean before they went into the tabernacle, before the presence of God, where they would represent God to the people. So these were regulations that were given by God to Aaron and to really the priesthood. But what we see as we move into the New Testament is that the Jews really extended these laws, not just meant for the priest or for the priesthood, but they extended these laws to everyone in their attempt to achieve holiness above and beyond what the law prescribed. In due time, these additional expectations then really became part of their their rigorous traditions. It spoke of the, the ancient traditions of old. It's because they, they, they put these traditions over and imposed them on the people, not just for the priesthood, but now for everyone. But notice Jesus' criticism of their spiritual condition. This is what he says. So they have all of these, these traditions that they adhere to, and, and they go through each step, and they're very methodical in this process. From point A to point Z, they make sure they don't miss a step. They don't miss a beat. But listen to what Jesus says. So, so externally, they have it down pretty well. I mean, they're, they're washed, they're clean, they're pure from an external standpoint. But look what Jesus says when he looks at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says about them, he says, they honor me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. They get it right when it comes to following the letter of the law, but when it comes to having a heart relationship with me, their hearts are so far removed from me in the first place. Churches with this same, what I'm just referring to as pharisaical mentality, will receive the same criticism by Jesus. So what does a pharisaical church look like? And what does Christ expect of you, of me, and of his church. I want to spend just a few minutes this morning really unpacking that question here from Mark chapter 7 and really, really get down to the core. What does God expect of us as a church? And how do we set ourselves apart from this pharisaical mentality or attitude that was so, so clear from the Pharisees? Number one, a church that takes pride in its expressions of external purity, but ignores matters of the heart, is dead and lifeless. I want you to see that again. A church that takes pride in its expressions of external purity, but ignores matters of the heart, is a church that is dead and lifeless. Uh, I'm here just to say I don't want to be a dead and lifeless church. I want there to be life that flows through us. Look at what Mark chapter 7 verse 5 says. So the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, they asked him, why don't your disciples follow 
our old or our age old tradition. They eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony. Take notice what happens here in the text. First of all, the Pharisees, they exuded with pride and they viewed themselves as better than everyone else. We see this all throughout the gospel accounts. Jesus is often uh, criticizing the behavior, the attitude, the mentality of the Pharisees because they, they walked with, with such incredible pride and saw themselves as better than every single else. But in reality, their hearts were so far removed from God. We see in Matthew chapter five where Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five, he taught against this attitude. He said in, in, in Mark chapter 5, verse 20, he says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you read on in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say things like, you have heard that it was said, do not commit murder, but I tell you, I say to you, and he is really, he's upping the bar here. He says, I say to you, don't even have hatred in your, where? Heart. It was all about a heart mentality. And yet their hearts were so far from God. We read in Matthew chapter six, when Jesus is teaching his disciples about giving and about praying and about fasting, he says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who give so they can be seen, who fast so they can be noticed, who pray out in public so people can see what they're doing and say, wow, those people are spiritual, when in reality, their hearts were far from God. So Jesus is teaching against this mentality. Don't, don't allow, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We read in Matthew 6, verse 1, Watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Pharisees, they tried to superimpose their age-old traditions upon everyone else. That's why they looked at Jesus' disciples and said to him, why aren't your disciples uh, following our traditions? Why aren't they washing their hands before they partake in a meal? Why aren't they washing the, the pitchers, the cups, and the kettles? They aren't following our laws and our traditions. How dare they? And Jesus, after hearing their criticism, looks back at them and says, you honor me with your lips. Man, your hearts are so far removed from me. Pharisees, we saw in verse four, they clung tightly to their traditions. And, and I know I said earlier on, there are some traditions, good and or bad, that sometimes we cling to. We don't wanna let anybody in. We don't wanna change. We don't wanna be flexible. Sometimes if we cling so tightly to those traditions, it becomes about the tradition and not about relationship with God. Outwardly, outwardly the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they had the appearance of being holy. But inwardly, they were dead, they were lifeless. No life in them whatsoever. Their hearts were so far from God. So if expressions of external purity only are not what Christ expects of his church, what is he looking for? Now let me just give these to you quickly. Number one, he's looking for a people who are hungry to experience the presence of Jesus Christ. That's what he's looking for. He's not so concerned about external purity. Here's the reality. If our heart is right with God, the external purity will follow suit. 
And, and so he's looking for a people who are hungry, who are desperate to experience the presence of God. We read in Matthew chapter five, verse six, blessed are those who what? Who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's what he's looking for. That's what Christ expects. It's not just about external purity, but where is my heart? And he's looking for hearts that are desperate, desperate to experience the presence of Christ. Number two, he's looking for people who prioritize daily time with God. And I have this statement up here, and I want us to, to capture this. Our corporate worship, what happens here on Sunday morning, our corporate worship will be a reflection of our private time in God's presence. God knows fake when he sees it. And so here's, here's what I want us to understand. We can come together on Sunday morning. We can lift our hands in praise and exaltation of the king. But the reality is it will truly be a reflection of what our time looks like. Are we spending time in God's presence on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and on Friday and on Saturday? And when things are not going so well, are we spending time in his presence? Because that will be reflected on Sunday morning when we come together for the corporate worship setting. He's looking for a people who prioritize daily time with God. He's also looking for a people whose passion is to make Jesus famous, to make him known. Every single Sunday, I don't, I don't do it out of routine necessarily. I do it because I mean it from my heart. Every time, every time that I pray, every time that I approach the scriptures, just before I preach, you'll hear me say, God, help me to decrease and help you to increase and be the focus of our time together. It's not about me. It's not about um, what I have to say. Instead, it's all about him. And my prayer is that I would step out of the way and that even if, even if I, you know, even if it's not a great sermon from my perspective, my prayer and hope is that the Holy Spirit speaks to you, challenges you, that the word of God would do something in your heart and in your life. The chief intimate, the, the, the shorter Westminster catechism, I've shared this before, the very first line, the very first question, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? And the answer to that question, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That, that is the purpose. That is the purpose, to glorify him, to make him known, to make him big, make him famous, and enjoy him forever. We are to be his ambassadors. We represent Christ, not ourselves, to a lost world. We also know that he's looking for a people whose worship is pure and expressions of praise are vertical. And I think the, the call to worship so, so beautifully captured that this morning, really Psalm 145 all the way through Psalm 150 begins with, I will praise the Lord. And so the psalmist begins with this vertical expression of praise. It's not about what's going on here horizontally. It's not about my circumstances. It's, it's, a, it's a beginning point where I say, I will praise the Lord. I will exalt his holy name. And he's looking for a people whose worship is pure. See that in John chapter 4, true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. It wasn't about, if you read John chapter 4, it wasn't about the place of worship whether it was on a mountain or, or in Jerusalem, it had nothing to do with a place. It was about the heart once again. True worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. Number two, a church that offers lip service unto God but fails to live a life of love 
lacks integrity. That's kind of a tongue twister. A church that offers lip service unto God but fails to live a life of love lacks integrity. Let me explain. Look at Mark chapter 7, verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people, they honor me again with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The Pharisees, they, they talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. All right, they, they had it down to a T when it came to their profession and they knew the law, they knew the traditions and they could, they could say it better than anybody else but when it came to actually living it out in a way where their hearts were so close to God, they were so far from him. They proclaimed extreme devotion to him but man, they were quick to exclude people from their club. Lepers were excommunicated. Samaritans, they wouldn't touch. Gentiles, they didn't wanna have anything to do with. They were all about exclusion. They appeared to follow every aspect of the law, but in the end, they lacked the most important element. That was love. What does Jesus say when he's asked about the commandments? What's the greatest one? And he responds, there's two. You're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our vertical relationship. And then we are to love our neighbor as ourself. That speaks of the horizontal relationship. And if you go through and you look at the Ten Commandments, you look at all 630-some laws there are in the Old Testament, it will speak to either a vertical relationship, what does my relationship look like with God, or how do I interact with others, my neighbor. The law could be summed up with those two great commands. They ended up imposing impossible demands and expectations on others. They were labeled by Jesus himself as being Hypocrites, because they declared one thing, but they lived another. So what is Christ looking for? He's looking for a church to offer more than just empty lip service. He's longing for us to honor him with our whole life. So what does that look like? Number one, our profession to love God must produce a lifestyle of Christian love and hospitality. It's not up here on the screen, but I want you to turn to your Bible. If you have your Bibles with you or on your phone, I want you just to hear these words. Romans chapter 12. I want to give you just a taste of what Christian hospitality and love looks like from the words of Paul. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. If you don't have your Bibles with you, maybe just close your eyes and listen to these words as I read them. It says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. I probably need to read that a few times. And don't think, not for you, for me, sorry. <laughs> and don't think you know it all. Verse 17, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live with peace in everyone, with everyone. He's looking for a church whose profession is to love God. And by that profession, it produces a lifestyle, a way of living, Christian love and hospitality. Folks, if we could, if we could just 
at least grasp a portion of what Paul has to say in Romans 12. That would certainly change a lot of things. Live in peace with everyone. Live in harmony with each other. There's so much conflict. And, and, and remember, what is the enemy's, what, are the, what is the enemy trying to do? He tries to come in, especially in the church. He wants to come in to distract and to destroy. Anything he can do to cause conflict inside the body of Christ, he will try to do because he wants to stamp out the work that God is doing. But if we can grasp and understand that understanding, then that will change a lot of things. Number two, we serve God. What does he expect? What does this look like? We serve God with humility and selflessness. I'm not gonna read it, but Philippians chapter two, verses one through 10, talks about considering the needs of others even before your own interest. Verse five, we are to have the attitude or the mindset of Christ Jesus who came in the form of, of, of man who humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. We are to follow his example. Number three, we don't just declare that we love our community, but we find ways to tangibly express the love of Christ to our neighbor. And I could spend a lot of time there, don't have time to do that. But I want us to not just be a church that says, we want to love our community, we want to love our neighbors. I want us to find ways to tangibly, it doesn't have to be church-sponsored, as believers, as part of the body of Christ, there are things that we can do to show love to our neighbors. There are things that we can do to, to express and be the hands and feet of Jesus without, without the, uh, the, the backing or the stamp of, of Glad Tidings Church. As believers, we are to live out this command, and that's what God calls us to do. Number three, church that allows its traditions to have the final word becomes a barrier to the gospel. Look at Mark 7. It says, their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God, for you ignore God's law and you substitute your own tradition. Hence, then, the additional extensions of the law. That's, they, they added to the law. The law was meant just for the priests, but then they extended those laws to every single individual. Their greater emphasis was on man-made traditions, which excluded many people from the fold. It kept out Gentiles. It kept out the lepers, the unclean, uh, the Samaritans that they did not want to touch. And so because of that, it became a barrier. Their man-made traditions became a barrier to the Gentiles and to Samaritans and to lepers from ever hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Their tradition pushed those people away. Therefore, they were not able to hear initially. Their refusal to engage anyone who was unclean created an unnecessary barrier. Their devotion to the traditions was more about exclusion and less about inclusion into the family of God. Sabbath-keeping, food laws, none of those necessarily were bad things, but when it trumped, when it trumped their relationship with God, when it trumped uh, the gospel, then their priority was out of whack. Their circle was so narrow that it excluded many. Listen to what David Gardland has to say, and I love this quote, it says, one may compare tradition to the shell of the blue crab. To live and grow, it must shed its shell from time to time. Until it creates a new shell, the crab is extremely vulnerable. But if the shell becomes so strong and rigid that the crab cannot escape, that is the shell in which it dies. Losing traditions that make one feel safe and comfortable can cause great anxiety. I've been there. I'm certain we've all been there. But hanging on to traditions 
so that one becomes hard-shelled, he says, is fatal. Traditions aren't bad. I don't want you to, to go home and get rid of all the traditions that you have. Traditions aren't bad, but when they become the focus, when they trump the gospel, it becomes fatal and there are eternal consequences. Christ is looking for a church with a gospel where the gospel is central and the traditions of the church are peripheral. That's what he's looking for. The gospel is center in the traditions. He's not saying get rid of your traditions, but, but they become peripheral. They need to be kind of on the outside. They don't need to be the focus of why we gather. We gather because of the good news of Jesus Christ to glorify him. Those traditions are, are great, and I hope we have some, but we need to make certain they don't trump the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Donald McCulloch says, God does not always respect the boundaries we create and carefully protect. Drawing lines in the theological sand may serve our purposes, separating good guys from bad guys, and can be helpful because it's hard to know that you're on the inside unless you know who's on the outside. But God has a studied disregard for anxieties of this sort. And I love this line, prodigal grace keeps spilling over into alien territory. What an incredible line. Prodigal grace keeps spilling over into alien territory. Church traditions, hear me again. I don't want you leaving this morning saying, Pastor Kyle said we need to get rid of traditions. Traditions are bad. That's not what I'm saying, all right? Church traditions aren't bad in themselves. We have them. Advent season, it's a time where we have special services, where we gather Holy Week, which we're getting ready to go into, Good Friday service. There are some traditions that we, that we engage in because they are good, because they help uh, facilitate the, the presentation of the gospel. Last few years, we've done Thanksgiving baskets that we've delivered. That's become kind of a tradition of this congregation and this church to show tangibly how much we love the community. But when they create barriers to the gospel or they become more significant than the cross, that's when the traditions become problematic. Just as a silly example, this doesn't, uh, when we came to my dad, when he came to Glad Tidings Church, uh, Pastor Kevin in Muncie, it was in 1999 when he came. Uh, they had the cert when he, I think it was his first service there, they had kind of the fellowship time that we have, right? You know, I tell you to turn around, shake a few hands. They had a fellowship time when he arrived that was more like intermission, all right? Um, they would have fellowship, and next thing you know, I mean, people would be gone for five or ten minutes. They would go to the restroom, go to the bathroom. It became a, and, and I, you know, we love fellowship, and we love, um, and I'm not saying that was a barrier at all to the gospel, but certainly it, it, it did um, make it a little bit harder sometimes to get through a message or get through a sermon. If you know my dad, uh, we need as, and I'm the same way, we need as much time as possible, all right? Um, and so certainly, if those traditions, if they trump the gospel, it becomes a problem. As individuals, and certainly as a church, we need to constantly assess whether or not we're allowing our traditions to trump the gospel. We also need to note that traditions may come and go. The good news of Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Finally, number four, a church that holds loosely then. Let me put it with a positive spin. A church that holds loosely to its traditions and prioritizes purity of the heart will be effective in advancing God's kingdom. Church that holds loosely, notice I didn't say that gets rid of, church that holds loosely to its traditions and prioritizes purity of the heart as individuals, but also as a congregation. Then 
It will be effective in advancing God's kingdom. Folks, that's, that's what I want to see. Goal is not just to, to build our own little kingdom here on earth. I, I pray and hope as we continue to see churches planted, whether it's in East Central Indiana or churches that are planted across the globe, we want to see God's kingdom continue to grow and advance. And one way that happens is when the local church, the local body, holds loosely to those traditions and prioritizes the purity of the heart. If our hearts are unclean, what happens? We begin to sow seeds of godlessness. Look at this text, end of Mark chapter 7, or Part of our text says he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart come what? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things, they come from within and they are what defile you. If our hearts are unclean, we're gonna sow seeds, not seeds of righteousness, We're going to be sowing seeds of godlessness. But if our hearts are pure and if our hearts are centered on the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that that Christ came, he lived a perfect, sinless life, that he died at Calvary, that he raised three days later, and that he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, if that's what our focus is, there is great potential for kingdom growth. So my question for us, not just me, But for us as a whole this morning, what kind of church will we be? Would you stand with me this morning? What kind of church will we be? I know what my heart's desire is. And I can tell you when I pray for you all, when I pray for this church, when I pray for this congregation, my prayer again is that we would be so centered, so focused on what is most important. That is Jesus. That when we are centered on him, focused on him, that we will see God's kingdom begin to advance.